0: God in heaven, we are. thank you for your word that you have inspired and given to us for our upbuilding um, and ultimately to lead us to know you more intimately, to know who you are and what you are about in this world. In these next few minutes, we have to explore your word and specifically 1 Corinthians 14. We ask that you give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, aim for our hearts, God, And I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity and with courage and with boldness that your word would go forth, the things that you are passionate about, we would be passionate about, and we would worship you and walk in obedience this evening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last couple of weeks, as we're working through this global pandemic with the coronavirus, has really begun to reveal some of the things that we are passionate about. You know, for some of us, that shows more of a passion about things like toilet paper. Maybe you see people coming out of Walmart or Costco or Sam's Club or wherever you do your shopping, and they've just got it it piled high, and people will go to extraordinary measures to accomplish the things they're passionate about. Maybe for others of you, it's uh, it's buying and supporting local is what you're really passionate about. And so you're hitting every local restaurant you can. I know we were uh, picking up some dinner the other night from the Rusted Silo, this great barbecue place over in Wisden. If you haven't been there, the rib sandwich is outstanding. I was enjoying that. And, and actually, we got to teach our little girls um, how to eat ribs. And so if you can just imagine... A three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old sitting around the table trying to learn how to eat ribs from their dad—it was a, it was a sight to see. Um, but but you know that's kind of an extraordinary means trying to teach your kids how to eat ribs so that we can support local. It's something we're passionate about. You know, a little more significantly, maybe you you've got a family member who's been impacted by this coronavirus, or a, a close friend, a coworker, or a neighbor. And you're passionate about being there for them and taking care of them. And you've gone to some extraordinary means to accomplish that which you're passionate about. And that's that's loving and caring for those that you love so deeply. Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, what we see is kind of what being revealed what God is passionate about. And we see God going to some extraordinary means to accomplish what he's passionate about. And and what is it, you ask, that God is passionate about? Thank you for asking. Let me tell you. God is passionate about people seeing his glory, finding salvation in him, and being made more like him. God is passionate about people seeing his glory, finding salvation in him, and being made more like him. And that's what we're going to see in these gifts. You'll remember last week I told you that God gives gifts to build up the body of Christ. That's the purpose behind them. That's why he's given them. You might say he wants to make more and better disciples. It's like Jesus' last words to us that we would go and and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They would make more disciples. But then he continued, Jesus did, in his last words, saying, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That they would be better disciples. That's the reason for these gifts. And so tongues and prophecy are given so that we will see the things that God is passionate about actually accomplished. And if we we try to understand these gifts, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, apart from the passion of God that inspires and drives them, then we're going to be confused and we're going to be frustrated. We're not going to understand it. So I I urge you to to think about these gifts through that lens. Now, as we we jump in here, I just want to remind you and catch you up to speed. Maybe you're new with us. uh, That what we practice here at Parkside is called expositional preaching or expository preaching. Where we go chapter by chapter verse by verse through a book of the Bible and so we've been moving through 1st Corinthians here we are in 1st Corinthians chapter 14 and one of the things that expository preaching does is it will bring you sometimes to controversial passages that you might otherwise avoid and expository preaching is good in that way because it's something that God has spoken about and he wants us to hear and to know and to learn And so in that way, you just recognize this is um, a little bit different. We don't speak on the gift of tongues every single week here at Parkside. Um, But because God has spoken to it, we also want to speak to it. And as, as we jump in, let me just say a couple of things on controversial topics because our world right now is, um, is very polarized and, and social media creates these, these echo chambers where we just kind of yell back and forth and we just hear the people we agree with and we vilify those we disagree with. And it's important that we consider a few things as we look at controversial topics. And, and right off the bat, I just want to say that on the, the topic of tongues, God has given us exactly what he wants us to have. Right? There's not a, a missing chapter where he said, man, I, I wish I would have included that and, and then it would have been so much more clear and we would know what's going on. And He's not saying, man, I said a little too much if I would have held that part back or if I would have worded that a little differently or if I, if I would have known how those people would misinterpret and misapply what I said. like No, what God has given us in his word on the gift of tongues is perfect because God himself is perfect. And so that's, that's a helpful reminder for us to have. Uh, but the second thing I want to say here is that disagreement on secondary issues is okay, right? The gift of tongues is not central to the gospel. This is a secondary issue. Where it is okay to have disagreement with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's several several errors that I want us to avoid here. And the error of liberalism is one of them. Where the error error of liberalism says that any disagreement is okay and we can still be together on the same team you can disagree about who wrote the Bible about who Jesus is about what he came to do or whether he was born of a virgin it doesn't matter you can still be on our team and join the same church and, and we want to reject that error because some disagreements really do matter At the same time we want to reject the error of fundamentalism Where fundamentalism says no disagreement is okay, and you've got to be agreed on every single jot and tittle, minor point of theology, and if you're not agreed on every single one of those, then you're branded a heretic and kicked out. We want to reject that error as well. But there's a third error that I think is even more prevalent than either of the first two that I want us to reject, and it's the error of laziness. (laughs) So say, Justin, what do you mean? What's the error of laziness? And it, it's this. I've seen this, this happening more and more recently where, where we have two speeds for how we kind of operate our theology. And the one is this is essential to the gospel. This is critical. And the only other speed we have is, well, it must not be important because it's not essential to the gospel. And that's just laziness in our thinking because there are certain issues that are not central to the gospel But they are issues that God has spoken on and they do matter. And then there are other issues that are not that important. It's okay to have just different random opinions on things. And So I want to challenge you this evening to recognize God has spoken on the gift of tongues. And so it's not essential to the gospel, but it is important. And we need to be able to think about this and discuss with others and disagree charitably with them. All right, one of the ways to think about this um, is along the lines of what J.R. Vassar has said. I, I love this quote. Take a look on the screen here. He says, one of the signs of Christian maturity is the ability to disagree with other Christians on secondary matters without vilifying them. You see, this is a sign of Christian maturity that I can recognize. You know what? This is a matter of secondary importance. And I can disagree with you in a charitable way and not vilify you. So I want to urge you to Christian maturity today. And as we go through this, I'm sure there will be questions that are generated. Um, And so feel free to text those in to the number on the screen. Uh, We got several last week, really good questions. We'll take those and the ones that come in this Sunday and record a podcast uh, sometime this week and release that and try and speak to those and give as much clarity as possible. So as we move in to speak specifically to the gift of tongues, let's kind of rehash just a touch from last week and then move into this week. Last week was on the gift of prophecy and you will have noticed a general excitement from Paul for you to exercise this gift of prophecy. He was eager to see you practice it. He wanted you to earnestly desire it. And what we're going to see this week on the gift of tongues is a general caution from Paul. He doesn't outright reject it. But there's a caution that you'll just see across the board. And so what we want to do as a church is to echo Paul's caution. And we want to proceed with the same level of caution that he lays out. All right. And so so as we get started here, let's start with the definition and then begin to explain 1 Corinthians 14 and the gift of tongues. So the gift of tongues we'll define this way is a prayer or praise you express to God in a language you don't understand. It's a prayer or praise you express to God in a language you don't understand. Now, this word tongues, gift of tongues, it can be translated as tongue, but it could also be translated as language. And the context kind of determines the meaning there. And so it's helpful to hear that, that the gift of tongues could also be translated the gift of languages. It doesn't have to be, like I so said, the context kind of determines that, but it's helpful to know that. And as we look at the gift of tongues, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is the only place in the entire Bible where we're given instructions in how to practice this gift. That's important to us. Notice, this is the only place in the entire Bible where we're instructed in how to practice the gift of tongues. But what we have in the book of Acts is several passages where we see the gift of tongues being described how it's being um, used in various contexts. And so as as we begin our study, I just want to turn back to those, read how the gift of tongues is used in the book of Acts, and then we can look at the instructions in 1 Corinthians 14. So grab your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll set the context just a bit. This is the day of uh, Pentecost. This is where Peter is speaking and uh, thousands of people are coming to Christ. It's where the Holy Spirit is first descending Um, And so we'll pick up with Acts chapter 2, reading in verse 1, you'll notice here that this is the gospel being proclaimed, people hearing the gospel in their own language and coming to Christ. Read the first uh, about a dozen verses or so. Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, or other languages, you might say, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language." And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? All right, so this is a A momentous occasion here where we see the gift of tongues, the gift of languages being used, the gospel being proclaimed, and people from all different nations coming together, hearing in their own language, and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the, the most extended description of the gift of tongues we have in the entire Bible. It's important to hear that. But there's another one in Acts chapter 10. So turn over just a couple of pages to Acts 10. We're going to start reading in verse 44. You'll see a similar theme here. The gift of tongues comes; it's proclaiming the gospel. People hear it in their own language. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. Acts ten, starting in verse forty-four. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word. And the believer believers, not the believers, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. I just pause there because this is. Um uh, something i'm I'm thankful for the the rise in denominations that we can now say that the Baptists came with me or that the Presbyterians came with me or the the Anglicans came with me because what what Peter said actually there the believers that were from the circumcised church came um and that would just be really awkward. aren't you glad they don't say that anymore like hey hey here's here's Joe, he's my circumcised buddy like I'm glad we don't do that, but we have we have digressed from what was inspired in the words of scripture, so let's keep moving. Verse 46, For they were hearing them speak in tongues, or in languages, and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So what we see occurring there is, is the gospel's preached, people get saved, Peter recognizes they were saved, they heard the gospel in their own language, and he says they need to be baptized. Because baptism is a way of saying, I have put my faith in Jesus and I'm going to follow him And so you see a similar pattern there. Now Acts 19, you may want to write down. There's another occasion of the gift of tongues being practiced there. Uh, We're not going to go and read it this this evening, uh, but it may be helpful for you to look at at a later date. Uh, But I want to lay those out so you're familiar with how the New Testament describes the gift of tongues. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 shows us instruction in how to practice the gift of tongues. And there's basically three views concerning the practice of the gift of tongues that we want to lay out. And I'm going to give you a couple of, uh, just kind of points of summary of each view and then a couple of main advocates for that view, which I, I do with caution. So, so hear that word, church family. Um, what we don't want to do is say, hey, this denomination teaches this, this ter- church teaches this, and therefore it's right. Or this pastor or this theologian teaches this and therefore it's right. No, what we need to say is, what, do, what does the Bible say? What do the scriptures say on this matter? Um, so, so I'll give you a couple of names of guys for each view, but don't latch on to those. Don't become a tribalist in that way. Um, but push yourself back to the scriptures and see what it says on this topic. All right, so, so three views. The first view is what we'll call the continuationist view. Pastor Chris began to introduce that to us a few weeks ago. Uh, The continuationist view of the gift of tongues says that speaking in tongues continues to this day and is a normal part of Christian living. Now, you guys understand that if I say there's only three views on this gift, that they're they're broad-ranging views. There's tons of nuance within each one. And so within the, the continuationist view, you've got one extreme addition that says, all Christians at all times should speak in tongues. And if you are a Christian and you are not speaking in tongues, then there's something wrong with you as a Christian. Okay? This would be like your uh, some of your more mainline Pentecostal denominations, like the Assemblies of God, Church of God in Christ, and, and some like those. Um, they, in fairness to them, they would read Acts 2-4 that says that everyone was speaking in tongues. And they would understand that not as a description, but as instruction going forward. And say, hey, if everybody was speaking in tongues then, then everyone going forward should be speaking in tongues as well. But there's also a kind of a more conservative view within the continuationist camp that doesn't say that every single Christian should speak in tongues. But that speaking in tongues should be happening um, in most of our churches. And it should just be a normal part of Christian life, like preaching and teaching and praying and serving and all of those things. Um, And guys that you might be familiar with in that camp would be guys like Matt Chandler or Francis Chan that would be more in the continuationist camp. Now, the second view that we want to talk about is called the cessationist view. You see the language there, cessation, ceasing, you kind of see the the semantics. The cessationist view says that speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy has ceased. It's over. It stopped somewhere right about the time when the New Testament was completed, And main advocates for this view would be guys like John MacArthur and Al Mohler, uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner, others like them. All right, And and what they're going to understand these gifts as is a little bit differently than how I understand the gifts. And I think what um, the scriptures teach and what we explained last week, they would understand these gifts to be on a similar or equal footing as as, uh, the words of scripture themselves. And so if the gifts continue then that would mean that the canon of Scripture is not closed. You have new quote-unquote revelations being given that are on the same par as Scripture, and they want to avoid that error. Really what that boils down to is is a disagreement, a um, a different understanding of what the gifts are. But I want to be charitable and explain how they understand them and and how those conclusions are reached. These are good brothers and sisters in Christ that we love, um, as is the case with the continuationist um, camp as well. The third view is the one that Pastor Chris uh, began to, again, explain a couple of weeks ago, and then this is where we land, is in a view that's called open but cautious. Open but cautious. And, And what we mean by that is we don't believe that the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy has ceased, but we should be cautious in their practice. Because when we look out, everywhere we see these gifts being practiced, we see them being practiced, especially the gift of tongues, in unbiblical ways. Parks, I can tell you that of our seven pastors, not one has ever seen the gift of tongues being practiced in a biblical way. So we're open to it because we believe the scriptures teach that we should be open to it. But we're cautious, you might even say skeptical about the practice of speaking in tongues. Because we don't see anybody doing it in a biblical way and it just seems to be off. So a couple of of, um, popular proponents of this view would be guys like John Piper or Mark Dever or J.D. Greer. Maybe you've heard of some of them. Just kind of give some ideas out there. Um, To me, it seems like this gift probably comes and goes a bit. Um, There's a ton of churches that are mentioned in the New Testament, but it's pretty rare that the gift of tongues comes up. And so it seems to me that may be an intermittent time, so we should always be open to it being practiced. But we shouldn't expect that all people, all times, all places, all context should implement it. Um, and I think you'll see as we walk through 1 Corinthians 14 why that is. All right, so as we take a deep breath here, I want to go back and I want to remind you of something um, that has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians 14 remember about a year and a half ago in the northeast side of Indianapolis when the IKEA store was built. Maybe it was longer ago. You see there's a, I don't know if that's the one in in Carmel or Fisher's or wherever that is or not. But you think about IKEA for a second. And anytime you get something from IKEA, you need the instructions to put it together. Now, maybe you're you're super, you know, good with your hands and you're not like me and you can just figure it out. But most of us need the instructions and it can be somewhat complicated. But with the instructions, it goes together and it fits together nicely. That's how I want you to think about the gift of tongues here. So what I think Paul has given us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is a bit like the IKEA instructions for speaking in tongues. It can be a little complicated. But if you distill it down into a few bullet points, you can start to see what's going on. And so that's how we're gonna approach this. I've got 12 rules, or 12 IKEA instructions, you might say, for speaking in tongues. And and I say, I've got them, I don't have them, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Um, And so we'll we'll walk through, we'll read those, and we'll see them. With 12 of them, don't worry, I'm not gonna go um, slow. Actually, we're gonna move pretty quick. So why don't we all take a deep breath. Good, fasten the seatbelt, click that in. And uh, we'll get started here. All right, 12 rules. Rule number one not everyone will speak in tongues. Not everyone has the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 through 30. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Right, the, 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 the questioning there leads us to believe, no, not everyone has every gift, and not everyone will have the gift of tongues. This tells us then that speaking in tongues is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a gift that God chooses to give to some and not to others. So if you're in a church or a context where they say, hey, you lack spiritual maturity because you are not speaking in tongues, you know that's wrong. If you're in a church or a context where they say, everyone should speak, everyone must speak in tongues, you know that's wrong. Now you might have have read through 1 Corinthians 14 and you wonder about verse 5. Say, Justin, put this together. Look back at 1 Corinthians 14, 5 with me. Paul writes, Paul writes, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Pause. What's going on? You say, Justin, not everyone has the gift of tongues, but Paul says he wants everyone to speak in tongues. And and what Paul's saying there in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 5, he's using a figure of speech to say uh, speaking in tongues is a good gift. Prophesying is a better gift. This is the one that is more desirable. Because if we read the rest of the verse, the context answers the objection very nicely for. So let me this time read all of 1 Corinthians 14, 5, and I think you'll see that the context makes it clear. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So what Paul's not saying is that everyone needs to speak in tongues. He's just saying, hey, you should desire to prophesy more than you should desire to speak in tongues. That's the first rule, not Everyone will speak in tongues. Everyone has the gift. Rule number two the gift of tongues can take various forms. The gift of tongues can take various forms. 1 Corinthians 12, 10. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. There's various kinds of tongues. We see the same thing in uh, chapter 12, verse 28. Uh, Look at the last phrase of verse 28. And various kinds of tongues. Right, so the second rule is that the gift of tongues can take various forms. Paul says there's various kinds of tongues. Keep moving here. Rule number three. The gift of tongues is primarily for unbelievers to hear the gospel. You heard that in Acts chapter 2, the passage we read of the description. Unbelievers hear the gospel in their own language because the primary purpose of the gift of tongues is for unbelievers to hear the gospel in their own language. You saw the same thing in Acts chapter 10 when we read that, verses 44 to 48. Look at the instructions in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Catch this. Thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers. The primary purpose of tongues is for unbelievers to hear the gospel. That's rule three. Rule four. The gift of tongues can also be used to build up the body. The gift of tongues can also be used to build up the body. 1 Corinthians fourteen five. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, and here it is, so that the church may be built up. Look at verse 26. We see the same thing being said. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The tongue can be used for building up. So a secondary purpose, you might say, of the gift of tongues is for building up the body. Rule five. The gift of tongues can also be used in private prayer. Take a look back at 1 Corinthians 14. Let's look at verse 28. It reads, But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. There's nobody to interpret. It's okay, you could still practice the gift of tongues, but use it in a a prayer language to God. Okay, now we, we don't see this anywhere being described in the Bible. Acts 19 is a little bit unclear. I referenced that earlier. My gut feeling is that Acts 19 is more building up the body and the private prayer we, we don't see described anywhere, but Paul says it is acceptable. Maybe this is what's going on in Romans 8. If you'll remember, uh, Paul writes that we pray and the Spirit helps us as we pray with groanings too deep for words. It's possible. I'm not entirely sure of that. But what we do know is this. A, a prayer in tongues is not to be the norm of your prayer life. This is not the normal way you ought to pray. God may use it on occasion to build you up and to encourage you, but it's not the norm. And and how do I know it's not the norm? Well, it's in 1 Corinthians 14, I know that. Look back at verse 14. It reads, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And so what what Paul is saying is you need to engage your brain in your prayers, not be lost up in some other language of tongues while you're praying. It, It may be used in that occasion at some point, but this is not the normal Christian experience of prayer. Engage your mind on who God is and on his promises and on his work and let that drive your prayer life under most occasions. Alright, so so let's quickly summarize what we've just said. Our first five rules about the gift of tongues. Number one, not everyone has the gift of tongues. Number two, the gift of tongues can take various forms. Number three, the primary purpose of the gift of tongues is for unbelievers to hear the gospel. Number four, the gift of tongues can also be used for building up the body. Number five, the gift of tongues can also be used in personal prayer. Now as we begin to look at rules six, seven, eight, nine, the next four, those all go together. And initially I was telling you that the gift of tongues is something that Paul expresses great caution about using. Paul's very cautious about our use and you'll begin to see that come out as we look at rules six, seven, eight, and nine, all kind of being mushed together. All right, so rule six, here's what it is. No more than three people should speak in tongues at a gathering. First Corinthians fourteen twenty-seven. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. So Paul says, if anyone does, not say when they do, but maybe they will, maybe they won't. They don't have to, but if they do, at a max there can be three. So this is helpful for us in saying, hey, if I'm in a church or I'm in a spot and there's more than three people that speak in tongues in one particular gathering, you know, that's unbiblical. That's not how God has designed the gift of tongues to be implemented and used. People are not following God's design. This is more of a man-made religion than a God-designed practice here. All right, that's rule six. Rule seven, only one person can speak in tongues at a time. We go back to verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. Each of them one at a time. This is not to be a gift where there's tons of people all speaking gibberish tongues and some ecstatic language all at the same time. That's not at all what Paul has in mind. It's probably what the Corinthians were doing, and that's why Paul's correcting them for. He says, look, this isn't something the masses should be doing either individually or all at the same time. Only three at most in one gathering. And as they go, it's one at a time. So if you're at a spot where you see more than three people in a a service and more than one at a time speaking in the gift of tongues, you know that's unbiblical. That's wrong. That's not how God has designed it. That's the seventh rule. Rule eight, each tongue speaking should be interpreted. Each tongue speaking should be interpreted. We've read 1 Corinthians 14, 5 a couple of times. We'll go back to it again. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. Look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. We need to get to the interpretation. Look down at verses 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, and speak to himself and to God. So you see, if the tongues are not being interpreted, you know again that's wrong. That's an unbiblical use of the gift of tongues that is more, more man-made religion than it is God-ordained religion in the use of tongues. Now, you ask about the interpretation, perhaps. What does that look like? How do I know if I have the gift of interpretation? Nowhere in the Bible do we see any description or any instruction in how to get and how to use the gift of interpretation. We, We see that it exists but we're not told how to get it. And so what we're what we're left to understand here is that this would be an unusual and a extra special working of the Holy Spirit to give you an interpretation. God doesn't give us a playbook on here's how to acquire this gift or here's normally what this will look like. But what we do know is this. The gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues are not on the same level as scripture scriptures up here these gifts are down here and anything that's spoken through tongues spoken through prophecy is not on the same level so if someone offers an interpretation that contradicts scripture you know that you can take that tongue speaking and the interpretation and throw it away because it's junk it cannot contradict scripture and just pastorally, a word that I want to give to you and to encourage you in is to look out for a prosperity gospel coming through the form of tongues. This is often what happens is somebody says they have a a tongue to speak and there's an interpretation that's given that says that you can name this promise and claim this result. You can name the death of this disease and this disease will be dead. I've seen that even this week being posted about COVID-19. People naming and claiming, as it were, the death of COVID-19. But friends, the scriptures say that suffering is the norm for the Christian life. Peter writes, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. If God incarnate, Jesus Christ himself, would be subjected to suffering, how much more would we, living in a broken and a fallen world, So as you hear people that may speak in tongues and offer this gift of interpretation, always filter it through the lens of Scripture and understand that if the interpretation doesn't line up with Scripture, the problem is the interpretation and it needs to be set aside. That's rule eight. Each tongue speaking must be interpreted. Rule nine. Confusion or disorder is a sign that the tongue did not come from God. Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then over in verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 14. But all things should be done decently and in order. So if the the speaking of tongues, and the interpretation that's given is done in a confusing way, it's not done in an orderly way, it's not done in a decent way, there's pandemonium, there's chaos, you don't have any idea what's going on, that's your clue to look at it and say, that's unbiblical. That's not how it's supposed to work. This is exalting man and not exalting God. And Paul's very clear about this. And he's also clear about why this is so important. And this is critical. It's critical to understand why this is so important. It's because it harms the message of the gospel. Remember what I said at the beginning. Why are we given the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues? It's because God is passionate about people seeing his glory, finding salvation in him, and being made more like him. And when we don't follow his pattern for the use of these gifts, it harms the gospel. And it keeps people from seeing the glory of God and finding salvation in him and being made more like him. Look at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 14. It says, If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? He says, look, if, if an unbeliever comes in... And they see the gift of tongues being practiced in this this disorderly, chaotic, crazy way. What are they going to say? They're not going to say, Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. No, they're going to say, you guys are a bunch of religious whack jobs. You're crazy. Why should I listen to anything you guys have to say? You are nuts. And they're going to turn around and they're going to walk out and the people that need to hear the gospel that are on their way to eternity in hell will not find salvation in Jesus Christ. This is what God is passionate about. People seeing his glory, finding salvation in him, being made more like him. And we have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel and to exercise the gifts that God has given us In the way God has told us to exercise them. We don't have the choice to just go rogue and do what we want. You might be watching and listening this evening and and you say, Justin, what is this gospel that you're even talking about? You you began to explain a few of these terms about Jesus and that. Let me just give it to you in four simple words. Here is the message of the gospel that must be protected, must be defended, must be proclaimed, and must be believed. It's this. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. God is holy, God is a a perfect God, that there is no one like him. He's completely set apart and that there's no sin, no imperfection that can be near him, but also there's no one even beginning to be like him. He is unlike anything else in all his beauty. But the second part is that I am not, and neither are you. None of us are. None of us are holy like God is holy. We are all deeply marred by the fall of man, by the sin and the brokenness that's entered this world. We're deeply marked by our own selfishness, our arrogance, our pride, and all of that separates us from God. And so while God is holy, we are not, and we can't be with God. We are lost. We have no hope of making it to God. There's no way that we can clean up our act. There's no way that we can say enough prayers. There's no way that we can give enough money to a church. There's nothing that we can do to get ourselves right with God. It's a bleak picture we're given that God is holy and I am not. But the third statement is that Jesus saves This is the good news of the gospel right here. That Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live but we didn't live. And then he went to the cross and he died the death that we were supposed to die. The death that our sins deserved. And he died that death in our place so that we would not have to die. So that if we would place our faith and our trust in his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins... Not only would he remove that judgment, but he would take his perfect life and give it to us. He would give us his righteousness so that we would then be holy and could be with God. It's like there's a physics test that we took. And we didn't have a clue about anything in physics. We never stepped a foot in the classroom. And so we just had a blank test sitting in front of us. And we turned in the blank test. But Jesus aced the test. And right when he went to turn it in, get his perfect grade, he erases his name, puts our name on the top, turns it in. He takes our empty test, erases our name, puts his name, turns it in. And he takes the punishment for the failing grade. But it's more than that. He doesn't just take the punishment. He gives us his perfection that we can live with God. And so God is holy and I am not. But praise God, Jesus saves. And when he saves, Christ becomes our life. And I recognize I'm no longer my own, for I was bought with the price, the price of Jesus' precious blood. And so everything I do now is given for him. My life is his. My gifts are his. My possessions are his. Everything belongs to Jesus. This is the message of the gospel. And the gift of tongues is given to get the message out. But friends, practice the gift of tongues the way God has designed Otherwise, you can harm the message of the gospel going forward, is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. All right. Now, all of this being laid out, Paul continues to move on and he says, Look, this is really important that we get it right. Okay. Verses 6 through 12, Paul takes this extended um, illustration, he creates a word picture of, of sorts to say how important it is that we do things in an orderly and a non-chaotic way. Look what he says, starting in verse 6. Paul writes, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound... So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. See, Paul says this is so important, right? If a, if a note is played wrong to try and get an army ready for battle, they won't be mobilized. Clarity is important. There's a way that things are supposed to be done. If the, the flute or the harp is played in an indistinct way and you don't know what's going on, then it's useless. It doesn't accomplish its purpose. And there's a way that gifts are supposed to be used so that we will see more and better disciples. We will see the body being built up in more quantity, more people getting saved and more quality. Believers following Jesus more wholeheartedly. And so rules six, seven, eight, and nine, they all go together to make this cautionary picture to say no more than three people should speak in tongues in a gathering, only one at a time, Every tongue speaking must be interpreted. And number nine, confusion or disorder is a sign that the tongue didn't come from God. Now, those things being laid out, Paul has three more rules, three more IKEA instructions, if you will, for how we should wrap this up. Number ten, anybody who ignores these rules should themselves be ignored. Anyone who ignores these rules should be ignored. Look at verses 37 and 38 of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. If you don't recognize these things as a command from the Lord, you should not be recognized. You should be rejected and ignored. It's like Paul saying, I understand that some of you are going to think you know better. And you're going to say, no, you don't understand the gift God has given me. God's gifted me to go do this. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 hold your horses, bucko. This is a command from the Lord. It's not my advice. This is God speaking. And you do what he said or you get ignored. So we take that to heart. And then number 11, 11, we should not forbid speaking in tongues. <laughs> this is interesting here because Paul's laid out all this cautionary tale to say, like, be careful, don't do it this way, it can harm the gospel. And it's like Paul understands as he goes through all of that, you could say, man, man. Wouldn't it just be easier to set tongues aside if there's this many pitfalls? And maybe we shouldn't be speaking in tongues. Maybe we, maybe we're just done with that gift. Paul says, "No, no, no, no. Do it the right way, but don't forbid it." Look at verse thirty-nine. He says, "So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues." Now, this comes full circle to what we said almost at the beginning. Paul says earnestly desire to prophesy. I'm excited for you to prophesy. You should look to speak God's word and God's will into uh, specific situations to personalize the scriptures, but you also shouldn't forbid prophecy. So we're more eager, or shouldn't forbid speaking in tongues, excuse me. So we're more eager to practice the gift of prophecy and we're more cautious in the gift of tongues because Paul says, be more cautious. This is where the, the position that we've, I've stated at the outset and we've established is that we are open to the gift of tongues because Paul explicitly says, don't forbid them. But we're cautious about their practice because we see the rules that Paul lays out and we see all over the church today people practicing the gift of tongues in ways that clearly violate what Paul has said. So we are open but cautious. Hope that's clear. Like I say, text in questions if you have them. Number 12, the last rule that Paul gives us is that everyone should come to church with something to give. 14.26. He says, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. In other words, the first rule, not everyone will speak in tongues, but the last rule Everyone does have something to give, which takes us back full circle to the beginning of last week. All the gifts are given for the building of the body of Christ. The gifts are not given for you to feel good about yourself. They're not given to build your self-esteem. They're not given so that you've got something to do during the week. They are given for others. God has gifted you so that you would encourage and equip and build up others, And so maybe the the application point for you this evening is to look around and say, what gifts has God given me that I'm not using for others? Maybe I'm just sitting on it. Maybe I'm using it in a way that makes me look good. But everyone has been given a gift that they would serve the body and maybe need to roll up the sleeves and jump in the game. That's what Paul said is super important here. So those are our 12 rules, our 12 IKEA instructions for speaking in tongues. And I hope you see kind of how the the whole piece begins to fit together. And when you just look at what God says, it's actually pretty clear. Here's how tongues should be practiced. Here's how they shouldn't be practiced. Probably shouldn't expect it every single week. But if God chooses to work in that way, we want to be open to that. And we don't want to be closed off to something the Spirit of God might be doing in our midst. So as we start to kind of land the plane here, what does this mean for us at Parkside? What does it mean for us? Well, some of you, maybe you're coming from a little bit more charismatic background and and you think maybe you have the gift of tongues. Right, let me just say at Parkside, we've, not that I've ever known of at least, ever seen this gift practiced in a corporate worship setting. And I I don't really anticipate that changing to be honest uh, because we're very cautious. You might even say skeptical about the practice of that. But if you thought you had the gift of tongues, what I would encourage you to do is to come to the pastors and explain how you believe that you have this gift. And let us enter into a season of prayer with you. Because like I said, this is not a gift that we've seen practiced in a biblical way anywhere ever. And so you'll understand our caution and our skepticism here. But we also want to be open to what God is doing in our midst. All right. I also want to encourage you, Parkside, as you consider engagement with people in different places. Um, theological positions here recognize this that we need to deal with others with charity and with love and with understanding we need not to vilify others whether they be more um, open to the gifts and more in a continuation uh, continuationist position or a little more um, skeptical towards them and even in the cessationist position work with one another in love open the scriptures together read them together, study them together and see what God has to say What else does this mean for us, Parks? I think it means that we need to be more dependent on the Spirit. More dependent upon the Spirit. Because it's easy for us to think that we can just kind of rationalize out all of our Christian life. And we can just get our systematic theology down. and, And we can be good to go in that way. But Jesus has called us. His very words are he's seeking people who will worship in Spirit and in truth. Not just truth only. Not just a bunch of Bible heads, a bunch of seminary nerds, but people who'll be moved in their spirit and dependent on the spirit and walking daily in the spirit. And we began to talk about this last week of the need to have a spirit dependence in seeing others around us, seeing the needs around us, seeing those who are silently suffering around us and being open to how the spirit of God is moving us. said, the last thing I want you to hear this, this evening from this message is that we need more passion for building up the body. When you look at what God is passionate about, people seeing His glory, finding salvation in Him, and being made more like Him, He is passionate about that. He went to extraordinary measures so that we would see His glory. He sent His one and only Son, His dearly beloved Son, to come and live and die for us. And he sent his spirit to come and gift and equip and carry us to accomplish this mission. And so maybe you're seeing all this and you're recognizing, wow, God is more passionate about his glory. He's more passionate about others finding salvation in him. He's more passionate about the church being built up than I am. Friend, I want to encourage you to repent of that. You may have done nothing quote unquote wrong, but you haven't had the God-honoring passion that he wants you to have. Maybe there's a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker that you need to be reaching out to with the good news of the gospel and you haven't had the passion you should have towards that. I want to encourage you to confess it before God and then to walk in obedience. Maybe you don't have the passion for building up this body that God wants you to have. And you've been sitting on the sidelines. And God is calling you to walk in obedience. The gifts are given to build up the body of Christ. And if we try to take them and use them in our own way or not use them in our own way, because it's easier or more comfortable, that is not what God has for us. 1 Corinthians 14 gives a playbook for Christian living in many ways. Friends, I encourage you to follow what God has laid down and trust him not only as the giver of the gifts, but as the sustainer of you. To carry you into obedience and to strengthen you where you're weak and to go forward in ways you think you cannot go forward because he is better than you think. He's stronger than you think and he will give you what you need. Will you pray with us? God in heaven, we ask that your truth would permeate our being and it would bring out a passion for people to see your glory, to find salvation in you and to be built up in you. God, where we lack passion for that, where we're more passionate about the Colts and the Pacers and sporting events and supporting local. God, we ask you to forgive us. But we also trust in your blood, Jesus, that has forgiven our sins and made us righteous and will carry us until the day when you return. And we ask that you would strengthen us with a passion for your glory and for those who don't know you and for your church to be built up.